for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. To fear here, Lord Jesus, and we just pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear. Um, and that would translate into a, a movement in our heart and our minds, Lord, just to see more of you, Lord, mm-hmm. and to fix our eyes more upon you, our loving Father, Amen. and our Jesus, our God, who is with us. We pray, Lord, for this time. Amen. 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 Thank you. <laughs> Morning. <laughs> so we're going to be learning today about Catherine Coleman. And as I was doing the um, like study and trying to put together my notes about it. There's loads of information about Catherine on the internet. So many, 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 many links and many stories, many biographies written about her, many things said about her. So one thing that I found very interesting though was that when you do like a Google search, the first thing that comes up is her Wikipedia page. And this is like one of the very first Wikipedia articles that I've read that highlighted the first thing on the line was a big caveat said this is not written in the usual encyclopedic style of Wikipedia this article contains many unverified stories and requires additional evidence so I just thought to myself that that's the tone of it really isn't it when it's about the supernatural when it's about the miraculous when it's about things of God there's always this air of could it be Will it be? Should it be? And that's, I kind of thought about it. And because I'm a bit of a skeptic myself, so I must confess that. I was reading as well and thinking, yeah, you know, give me the evidence. Show me how it is real. But I mean, I've been really amazed as I've spent the last few weeks reading about this woman, learning about her life, learning how human she was. She had failings. She made big mistakes. Like I was like, you know, but she was completely, totally utterly yielded to God. She just wanted to do his will. She wanted to serve him with all of her life. And she gave everything as she was. And that just amazed me and that challenged me radically. And I hope that it do the same to you as we speak about her today. So Catherine Coleman. This is something as she had said, which I found really summed up everything it was about her life. The greatest human attainment in all the world is for a life to be so surrendered to him that the name of God Almighty will be glorified through that life. And that was everything about her. That summed up completely how she felt and how she lived her life. This morning, as I was you know, doing my devotional time, I remembered an old hymn, Take My Life, Take My Life and Let It Be. And I thought that was it. My lips, my intellect, my will, my feet, my hand, everything. Let them move at the impulse of your love. That was Catherine's life, I think. Next slide. So we're going to be doing... Next slide, please. Thank you. So we'll be looking at her story, talking about her early days, how she came to faith, and we'll focus a bit on her ministry. And then we'll look at what does that all mean for me? How does that relate with my Christian walk, how I'm living today? So Catherine was one of the most influential faith preachers of the 20th century, and she today is celebrated as one of God's generals. So it's been estimated that during her 40-plus years of ministry, she witnessed to over 100 million people. She touched over 100 million lives. That's a mind-boggling number. I couldn't just figure it, 100 million. So these were people who came to her meetings, who listened to her radio preachies, who listened to her on TV, 100 million. Can you wrap your mind around that number? 
she, wherever she went, there were astounding miracles that followed, and she was a woman of great humility. So famously, she would say she didn't want to be called a healer, faith healer. She didn't want to be called anything. All she wanted to be known as was handmaiden of the Lord. That was her title. She was the handmaiden of the Lord. She was once asked, what do you regard as the ultimate goal of your ministry? To which Catherine replied, my purpose is the salvation of souls. Divine healing is secondary to the transformation of life. I find that really interesting that what she was most about was the salvation of souls. And I think the visible things you could see from her ministry was, of course, the healing. If you hear about Catherine Coleman, I think the first thing that comes to your mind is, oh, miraculous healing. So many things took place in her meetings. But to her, the most foundational, the most amazing thing was the salvation of the souls of men and women. Time magazine wrote about Catherine in 1970. And I quote this. Catherine Coleman looks for all the world like dozens of women in her audience. But hidden underneath the 1945 Shirley Temple hairdo is one of the most remarkable Christian charismatics in the U.S. In each of her recent services in Los Angeles, in Toronto, and her home base of Pittsburgh, miraculous cures seem to occur. And this was Time magazine. So this was a circular magazine that was writing about her. Catherine was born on May the 9th, 1907, in a small little town called Concordia, which was five miles north, or five miles south of central Missouri in the U.S. She was born into a family of, um, her father was a farmer. He had about 106 acres of land, which he was farming at the time, of German descent, Lutheran family, strong um, Lutheran base, but her father wasn't really a church-going person. She was one of four, maybe three, sources are not clear, one of four, three children, and she seemed to be the youngest child of the group. When she was born, she had an older sister who was called Myrtle. Myrtle was about 15 years older than she was, and she had a brother as well, Earl, and I think she had another sister, Greta, I think. Um, when she was six years old, her sister married an itinerant evangelist um, called Everest Parrot. And her sister moved off to live in Chicago. And that's important because that was how she started her ministry. As a child, Catherine was very, very close to her father. She didn't have a very warm or loving relationship with her mom. She said her mom was a strict disciplinarian, but she was very close to her father. And she spoke later on and said that this helped her to understand the father heart of God because her father could do no wrong in her eyes. He was perfect. Um, Catherine Coleman came to a personal faith in Jesus when she was 14 years old. And this was at a two-week revival service, which was held in a Methodist chapel in Concordia. It was led by a Baptist evangelist called Reverend Hummel. And when I read this, I kind of thought I paused. And do you know what I did? I went to do a search and found out, how did Billy Graham get saved? It's really interesting. Does anyone know how Billy Graham was saved? Yeah, so I have like a little chain. There was a gentleman who was called... Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher teaching a group of young boys, rambunctious young boys, and they wouldn't stay in, and they were so troublesome and naughty. But he followed, you know, he was really interested in seeing Christ formed in these little boys. And one of his students was called Dwight Moody. I'm sure a lot of people know who Dwight Moody is. Dwight Moody became a very famous evangelist and a preacher, and in one of his services, a gentleman called Mordecai Ham 
was saved in that service and went on to become an evangelist and a preacher himself. So it was Mordecai who went to preach in Houston, in the town where Billy Graham grew up. And it was at one of Mordecai Ham's services that Billy Graham gave his life to Jesus at age 15. And Billy Graham is noted to have reached the most number of people, apparently more than Apostle Paul, with the gospel of Jesus. And this all started with a gentleman called Edward Kimball, who I have never heard of, and I don't know if anyone here has heard of him too. He's God's general as well. And that's one point I thought that was really critical. I was going to have a last slide on, but, you know, I didn't want to mess up the presentation at the end, which is lots of boxes, and I was going to pull names from the church registry and just put names in there. All these people are God's generals. Now, while we speak about Catherine, we speak about Billy Graham, being faithful in the spot where God has put you, at the time where he has put you in that spot, qualifies you as one of God's generals. When Catherine was 16 years old, in 1923, she joined her sister Myrtle and her husband in their tent ministry. So I think this was a time of great revival in the United States, and there were a lot of evangelists going around with tent ministries. So typically what they would do, if they came into Ashford, they would pitch a tent, kind of like the circuses that we have, and then there would be days of revival meetings, and people would come to these revival meetings and would get saved, and they would stay for two, three weeks, and then they'd pack up and go to the next town, move on to Canterbury and have the meeting there, and move on, and that was what was going on. And this is what um, her sister Myrtle was doing with her husband Everett. And Catherine joined them in this ministry when she was 16. Basically, her job then was doing the laundry, helping to set up the tents, put up the chairs, take them down. And then when they went into any new towns, she went around with a bell, just kind of ringing a bell, like a ye town. <laughs> revival is in town, revival is in town, and inviting people to the meetings. And that's what Catherine did. So those were difficult years for the team, I can imagine, being itinerant missionaries or preachers, evangelists. There was no sort of like backing from any church organization, so they were raising the money as they were going along. These were slipping into the early 20s, times of the Great Depression in the U.S., so it was a very difficult and a challenging time. The ministry work was very, very hard. Sometimes during the preaches or during the meetings, Everett would ask Catherine to come up stage and give her testimony about how she came to meet Jesus, age 16. She did have quite a dramatic well, not really dramatic, but she had an encounter with God at the time she was saved. And she would give her testimony, but she wouldn't just give it. So I watched some of her old videos. And I tell you, you know, because I'm a bit of a skeptic and I just like things nice and proper. She's like, this is the word of the Lord. And that's the kind of thing she did. And she would give her testimony. She was very theatrical. She was very dramatic. But she was compelling. And when people heard her story, they were moved to know this God that she spoke about. After about three, four, five, three years, four years, um, the tent meeting moved to a town called Boise in Idaho in the U.S. Whilst they were there, there was a bit of problem between Everest, that's her brother-in-law, and her sister Myrtle. So their marriage was going through a bit of difficulty, and he left the, three, the two ladies, this is Catherine and her sister Myrtle, to continue with the tent meetings in Boise, and he moved on to another town, by this time, they had been joined in ministry by a lady called Helen Guilford. Helen was a concert pianist, and she played for the Lord. That was her calling as well. So she joined them in the ministry. 
So it was these three ladies who had left behind in Boise to try to keep up with the revival meeting because um, Everett moved on. After a few weeks, things were really bad. So I said to you that they were funding the ministry basically from the love offerings that they were taking, and they weren't able to fund their meetings any longer. Myrtle went back to meet her husband, and she left Catherine and Helen behind in Boise. And really, that's where her ministry took off. I also find that that's really interesting, because that was when there was nothing to go by, nothing to move forward with. And a certain young pastor in that town asked them to stay and minister in his church. She started to teach in his church, and that was really her first ministry. She started to pull sermons that she'd been writing over the years, and she started to speak and to teach. And she had, like I said, such a compelling testimony. She had such a personal way of speaking about this Jesus that she knew. There was amazing, amazing, amazing things came through in her ministry. So that was where it all started, her first sermon in a mission church, which used to be a pool hall in a rundown section of Boise, Idaho. A few old chairs pulled together, an old piano, and that was what Helen was playing. But people loved her. They called her the lady preacher. And there was a talented musician, so there was music, there was good preach. People came, they listened, but their lives were changed as well. After the summer, both Helen and Catherine traveled on to Pocatello, another small town in Idaho, and they held meetings there in an old opera house, which they had to basically cling and re, you know, refurbish. It was run down, it was broken. They did all the work themselves. Again, they were raising funds themselves. They weren't supported by any missions, but they were driven by a love for the Lord Jesus and a zeal to see his kingdom advance. I can't wonder, you know, when I read about all this, the, the evangelistic era and all this revival movement, I was like, There was such a fire about them. What made people, ordinary people like you, like me, leave home, leave kids, leave family, and live this eternal lifestyle, just going around towns, preaching about this Jesus? I thought, there was something. There was something. It must have been something they knew about him. I, I don't know if I've caught yet. But it made them leave everything that they had and chase after his kingdom and chase after his will. After about four or five years of you know, moving around small towns in the northwest of the U.S. and preaching and setting up all these revival meetings, Catherine and Helen ended up in Denver and spent a few months there, about six months, holding revival meetings that were very, very well received. And at the end of six months, she was asked by a congregation there to stay and pastor a church. And so they set up a church, which was the Denver Revival Tabernacle, and if you could see the pictures caught a bit, but the sign on top of that building says, prayer changes things. And this is one of the catchphrases that Catherine had, that prayer changes things. And that was one of the foundational key truths upon which that ministry was built, that they would pray, God would hear prayers, and lives will be changed. Miracles would happen. It was while she was doing the evangelistical circuit with her sisters, they did... Um, become acquainted with the ministry of Dr. Charles Price, who spoke a lot and taught them about the power of the Holy Spirit. Up until this time, Catherine hadn't really understood the Holy Spirit as a person and as an important and integral part of her ministry as well and of her teaching. She usually would teach about redemption and salvation through the blood of Jesus, and this was the thrust of her message. But whilst in Denver, she began to speak and teach about the power of the Holy Spirit, 
and experiencing that power for yourself and how that power could change your life. The ministry in Denver was very successful and it grew. She had thousands attending. There was miraculous signs. There were lives being changed, people giving their lives to Christ. Every night the meetings were held. It was amazing. It was also one of the most challenging times of Catherine's ministry. That happened as well in Denver. So while she led this congregation and she pastored this church, um, she would often open the pulpit to visiting ministers from different places. And one of them was this chap, Boris Waltrip. He was a theory evangelistical, young, good-looking pastor. And he would come and he would take the pulpit and he would preach with such intensity and zeal. And they really loved his preaches and he was so impactful. Catherine had him over several times. After a few after a while of having him come to her church, and she visited his church as well. He set up a church close by as well, and um, she visited his church and she preached there. They began to develop a relationship, and the only problem with this was that Waltrip was a married man. He was married, and he had two children, and they started to have a romantic relationship at the time. So this was very, very, very difficult, very challenging time for her. He eventually divorced his wife and married Catherine Coleman. She married him. All of this was really, and remember, this was the 1930s. It was quite a big scandal. And her church in Denver, they didn't take it. So they sent an emissary to tell her that they didn't want her back in the pulpit. And she lost that ministry. She lost everything as she was doing in Denver. Catherine moved to a nearby city called Mason City in Iowa, where Waltrip had his own mission. He had his own ministry there. And she started to share the pulpit with him, and they held a ministry together. But that fell apart. It wasn't more than six months before the church there found out that he had divorced his wife and married Catherine, and they also asked them to leave. The church fell apart and fell to pieces eventually, and they both became itinerant pastors again. For the next four or five years... They were moving around, preaching, and setting up revival meetings. It was very difficult because people wouldn't open the pulpit to them. People wouldn't come to the meetings because it was quite a scandal in those days. I think it'd be a scandal today as well if you had this big evangelist, this big, um, well-known, renowned preacher who suddenly divorced his wife and married another big evangelist, a well-known preacher. It'd be a scandal today, I think. It was. It was in 1934. It was a big scandal. For the next four or five years, her ministry took a real big downturn. Catherine was depressed. She was very unhappy. And people who, who went to the Mason City Church and saw her preach, or saw her there, she didn't really preach. She was often sat behind Waltrip in the pulpit, and she was weeping and crying incessantly. She was desperately unhappy. After being married to Waltrip for six years, she left the marriage and she moved away from where he was. There's not a lot heard about Waltrip after she left him, but you see, 
I, I really, 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 really pondered on this and I thought to myself, why did she do that? What happened? She seemed so in tune with God and with the Holy Spirit. How could she have made that decision? Such a, seemed to be such a poor and such a bad decision. And when I weighed what it was that she gave up to have this relationship, there seemed to me no balance. It was completely just out of character. So I read an article, which was in Charisma magazine, and I think if you check and Google it, you'll find it. It was talking about this, and someone has actually written a book about it and spoken about the spirit of, he called it the spirit of the Antichrist, and that there is such a, a, an attack on people who are in public ministry. And the attack is to destroy, to steal, to kill. And that's a threefold ministry that's held by one and one only, by Satan himself. He says the thief comes not but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And I just thought about it. You can imagine the picture I said to you about Graham, Bill Graham, and starting off with a gentleman who was called, I forget his name now, I've already forgotten his name, <laughs> who was called Edward Kimball, and on to Dwight Moody, and then on to Mordecai Hall, and then on to Bill Graham. So can you imagine if the enemy had been able to take out Dwight Moody from that equation, and there was no Dwight Moody, and there was no ministry of Dwight Moody, Think about the roll-on effect. So there would have been, potentially, no ministry of Mordecai Hall. Potentially, no ministry of Billy Graham. Potentially. And so there is an attack. We have an enemy. He doesn't sleep. He's busy. He's working. And he's targeted in what he does. To my mind, there was no other reason I could see why Catherine Coleman would have married this gentleman, but that there was a definite attack. And at the time, there was vulnerability, and she fell under that attack. And for six years, she was in a wilderness. There was nothing from her. She was dry. There was no fruit from her ministry. But she got up. She dusted herself, and she went back to ministry. And it brings to mind, after Christ had been crucified, and there was Judas Iscariot, and then there was Peter. So they both had betrayed our Christ, albeit in different ways. One sold him off, and the other one just said, I didn't know him. But essentially, it was both, both of them, that it was a betrayal. And I, I believe that there was genuine anguish and regret about what they both did. Each, each of them felt that. But with one of them, it was a repentance that led to life. And with the other one, it was regret that led to death. So we're all going to make mistakes. We'll make them small ones. We'll make mid-sized ones. We'll make gigantic mistakes. But Christ paid it all. All paid in full. So Debbie, thank you for singing that song last. That song's been moving me so much. In the last month, I've been, two weeks, I've been listening to it. Thanks, Debbie, as well, you know. It's, if you think about the fact that you are the one, the one sheep that he left the 99 for, and that just tears me up. And he went after you, just the one. And if you listen to the YouTube clip where there was um, the original song, there was sort of like a ministry section in the middle. And he said that God bankrupted heaven for the one. And that's why it's a reckless love. He left everything he staked everything. And that's what Christ has done completely and totally. Pay the price, nothing left to do. 
no matter how big your mess up, no matter how big the mistake you make, let it lead you to a genuine repentance that brings you back to life. What Catherine Coleman could have done was stay on the ground and stay dead. But no, she found her roots back in Christ, dug those roots deep, and the fruits that she bore in the later part of her ministry were tremendous. They were even much more than what she had done in the first half. But I tell you why. She said something. In the last few days before she married Waltrip, Catherine had posted a message. She had printed something in their church news bulletin. And this were the words she said. She titled it Heartaches. She said, sooner or later, all our feet must go down that veil of sorrow and suffering and darkness and tears, she wrote. The heart that has never known sorrow is dwarfed, and the nature which was capable of the highest heights and the deepest depths is undeveloped, and the life can never experience the deepest chords of joy without having known the depths of true sorrow. I think that's absolutely true. The Bible says that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection. Will you know the power of resurrection without knowing the power of death? You must know the power of the death and the resurrection. And I think that's what Catherine did. She went through that valley so that she could truly, truly, truly understand the significance of the salvation that she bore and the message that she was bringing. Truly. And many of us, we go through valleys and wilderness experiences in life. I went through one last year. It was terrible. It was terrible. It was terrible. And I tell you what, it was Ben Goodman who was here last year. And he spoke a prophetic word over me. He said, what happened to you was meant for evil, but God meant it for good. And if it hadn't happened to you the way it did, you wouldn't know God the way that you do. Mountaintop experiences, they're amazing. I want to stay on the mountaintop all the time. But I tell you the truth. It's in the valley when everything is stripped back, when everything is, you know, falling and taking away. You truly, truly know where your anchor is and whether Christ truly is who he says he is. And he is who he says he is. He is. He is. James says to count it all joy when you face various trials and tribulations because you know it produces a fruit in you of perseverance. When your roots go deep down in times of tribulation, in times of sorrow, in your wilderness experience, then you grow stronger and taller up. You're full of compassion. I believe that her ministry became more compassionate because she could understand that anyone is susceptible to sin. After Catherine left Waltrip, she moved to and settled in a town called Franklin in Pennsylvania. It was a small town of about 10,000 people, and that was the first place that she received like a favorable welcome. They wanted to hear her message, and they didn't really, really pull up all the mistakes that she had made most recently. And she thrived, her ministry thrived there, and it grew and it grew. This is when she really began to speak and teach about the pursing of the Holy Spirit. And it was in one of her meetings As she spoke and talked about the power of the Holy Spirit, she did nothing. There was no prayer. There was no word of knowledge at the time. 
And a lady then gave a testimony. She said, I was in your meeting yesterday and you were teaching about the passing of the Holy Spirit. The lady had a cancerous tumor growth, a growth, and she said she was healed, completely healed of this tumor. Also at the same time, there was a gentleman who was legally blind in one eye. He was a war veteran, and I think he had lost an eye during the war. As she spoke about the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit and who he was and what he could do in their lives, his eye was healed. I don't know about you, but I told you at the beginning, I'm quite a skeptic. It tingles. It makes me think, what? You were blind, and then you could see. This is like things I see in the Bible, but these were things that were happening really and truly. I've heard stories, but I tell you, and I will give you my own testimony. I've lived it as well, and I can tell you that God is real, and his healing power is real. This is what Catherine, the message that she brought, and it just grew from there. And people would come in their numbers. And there were miraculous signs. And there were healings. And there were deliverances. All sorts. And this is just a typical example of the type of place she would pack out and fill up. with Meetings day after day after day. These were people hungry. And these were people thirsty. They wanted to know more. So for the next 30 years, she labored unseasonally. She was, her, her meetings were non-denominational. She cut across all. So it was Catholics. It was Anglicans. It were Lutherans. There were Methodists. Anyone who would hear. She once met the Pope as well. Anyone who would hear about this Jesus, she was going to tell you about him. She set up no walls and no lines. She just wanted to tell you about him and about the power that was available in him. Her ministry continued to grow and grow she moved eventually to, in 1965, she extended her ministry to Los Angeles and she started to preach as well, regularly there in the 7,500-person seater hall. And I think that's the picture from one, that hall. And she would pack it full every day. I was just thinking, do you think we could gather 500 people in Ashford to tell them about Jesus? If she did, 7,500 people. It's the same God that we serve, the same attraction, the same draw, the same Holy Spirit. So throughout her ministry, Catherine objected to being called faith healer. She'd often say, no, she wasn't the healer. She just spoke about God, and God was the one who did the healing. She only, if there was any gift that she laid claim to, it was the gift of the word of knowledge, because oftentimes she'd be preaching, or there would be worship going on, and she would receive a word about someone's condition, about a health condition, about something. So she did have the gift of the word of knowledge. She worked incessantly. She had six-hour preaching marathons. And she was a perfectionist. Everything had to go just so. And her meetings were spectacular. Those were the words I saw. It says it was spectacular. It was a spectacle. And this was in the heydays, I think. And she just had preaching in Los Angeles, in, in California, the place where this was the heydays of Hollywood. And then they said they were spectacular meetings. She had a Radio ministry as well. She used the media very effectively. I can imagine if she was around this day, she'd probably be twitting, she'd be on Instagram, she'd be on everything. She used all of those media effectively to push the message of the gospel. Does anyone know how Catherine Coleman died? No. She died of a heart condition. 
actually died from complications arising from open heart surgery. And I struggled with this a bit. Does anyone? So it says from 1955, she started to have a heart condition and she was regularly on medication to manage that situation. On February the 20th, in 1976, she died in a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma from complications arising from open heart surgery. I just said, my God, this is like physician, heal thyself, isn't it? God is sovereign. That was my conclusion about the matter. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And like Catherine herself said, the greatest thing is the salvation of the soul. So my mum passed in 2011, and she, she had leukemia. And she was diagnosed, I think, in April, and she passed in July. It was very quick. And all of my siblings were all Christians, all saved. There was tremendous amount of prayer all around the world. People were praying. People were praying and praying and praying. And she, she, she was here being treated. And she came home for like about a month. She went home to Nigeria. And she went into a healing service. And there was a word of knowledge that spoke directly to her. And they called her out and they prayed over her. My mom is, she's a Christian. She's a traditional, more from an Orthodox background. But she went to this and they prayed for her. And she was so enthused. She was so joyful. She said she'd been healed and that she was done with leukemia. She was well. She was strong. She told her friends. She told everyone. And so she came back here to England. And she went into the hospital because she was still... She went in for a bout of chemotherapy. The very first treatment, she passed. She didn't come out to the hospital. And it was such a shock to us. Because we're like, God Almighty, why didn't you heal this woman? My mom is, you know when I spoke about the domino? She's like right there, stuck in the middle. And for her to leave, it was a lot of things that were going to fall. But... With my older sister, we struggled and wrestled, because my sister was with her. She was caring for her. And we struggled and wrestled with it. And you have to understand and believe and trust in the sovereignty of God. And the word that came to us is, death is a healing. You pass, and that's the ultimate healing. And he took her. And that was the ultimate healing. And somehow I think that's what happened with Catherine. She was done here. Paul says, I fought the good fight. I finished my race. I've kept the faith. And it was time for her to go and leave the scene. And I think that's what happened with Catherine. So I asked the question, what made her ministry so impactful? How could she do all of these things she did? Catherine only went up to grade 10 at the time, that was all the education you could get in Concordia when she was growing. She didn't attend any theological seminaries. She was only ordained a minister, I think, in 1968, after there was quite a bit of hue and cry about whether or not she should be pastoring a church or a congregation. So she was ordained by some denomination. But she was an ordinary person like me and like you. Why and how, or rather how, did she do the things that she did. 
So this is my thinking about it. She was absolutely and completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. She did nothing of her own. Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. In John 16, Jesus was talking to his disciples. And he said something to them. He said, in verse 7, it says, It's better for you that I leave. If I don't leave, the friend, advocate, your helper, the Holy Spirit, he won't come. But if I go, I will send him to you. What could have been better than Jesus? Who could have been better than Jesus? He says to them, look, it will work better for you if I go. Let me go, and I'll send you the advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit. He's coming. He's coming. And he says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He won't speak on his own. He will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. I think what Jesus understood is because Jesus was fully God, yet he was fully man, he had the limitations of a man. He could only be with his disciples at the one time, and then he could be at the marriage in Cana of Galilee. He could be before Pilate. He couldn't be before Herod at the same time. So he had the limitations of being fully man. But the Holy Spirit is limitless. He's with you. He's with me. He's with you. He's with you. He's here. He's in the cafe, he's upstairs, he's limitless. And he carries the full embodiment of everything that God is. We have him inside of us. Jesus said to the disciples that greater things than I have done, you will do. Fancy that. You go out and raise the dead. You go out and change lives dramatically because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He is the spirit of God. He inhabits us as his vessels. That's powerful stuff. How do you contain God? There's an, one of the old songs. It says, I think it's, um, what's her name? Uh, I forget her now. And she thinks, she says, nothing is beyond you. You stand beyond the rich. And she talks about this mighty big God, you know. And the song says, oh no, it says, God of the heaven and God of the earth. He's God of the last days. And he's God of the first. He's God of creation. It's so awesome to consider that he cannot be contained by the heavens. Yet he lives in me. Yeah. How did you figure that? Yeah. It's amazing. Right. It's amazing. The Holy yeah. Spirit lives in us. And this is what Catherine understood. She understood the power. The Bible says that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead yeah. is living inside of you. It's living inside of you. It's living inside of you. That same spirit, that should excite us and think, nothing is impossible. I think that's what Catherine knew. Nothing is impossible. She completely, totally depended on the Holy Spirit. You better be dependent on him, because on our own we can do nothing. But with him we can do everything. Not anything, everything. And I'm not just saying words here to stir us up. It's the truth. This was an ordinary girl, not very well-schooled, not trained in the um, typical fashion for seminary or the like. But look at what she achieved. A hundred million people touched by her life. So she understood the power of prayer. And I was there on top of that Denver tabernacle. She said, prayer changes things. I simply can't say it any better. Prayer does change things. So I'm one who struggles with prayer. 
and I've read a book which I can recommend. It's called Confessions of a Prayer Slacker. I've read it twice. It's called Confessions of a Prayer Slacker. And it's really interesting. It just talks to you. But when you boil it all down, I didn't say a lot about prayer because we've heard a lot of good preachers about praying. And it's just that prayer is talking to your father. And I said something here in my notes. Prayer changes things and prayer changes me, really. It's going into his presence and saying, well, this and this and this and that. And then I listen to him and let him speak and change me, conform me to his image, shape me, mold me in the place of prayer. Um, In Psalm 37, it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will grant you the desires of your heart. Now, you could think that means, oh, whatever I want, God's going to give me. But you know what? When you delight yourself in God, he shapes you. He makes you like the things that he likes. He's a bit sneaky, you know. When you spend time with him, you start to like the things he likes. You start to do the things that interest, you know. You become, you take on his appetites. How's that? You become very familiar with your father and take on his attributes. He will give you the desires of your heart. Yeah, he will. So, yeah, so prayer... Catherine emptied herself of death. She talked often about dying a thousand deaths. Paul says in Philippians 3, 7 to 10, he talked about that whatever it was that he counted as profit. And so Paul was, in back in those days, pardon fighting, thanks. So back in those days, Paul was, you're like, this is the ace Jew. This is what you want to be. So he was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee, who was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin wasn't. So everything, he ticked all the boxes. He was right. He ticked all, I don't know, typically what would that be today? He probably came from the royal family, you know, was born into royalty, born into wealth, well-educated. You know, everything, he ticked all the boxes, doing well. He said everything was rubbish. He counted it as dung, as loss. Dung, you know, dung, manure. For the excellence of knowing Jesus, he emptied himself. So self, no, 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 nothing, nothing. He was nothing. There's a song as well. It says, you know, um, I give myself away. And I sometimes think that's a contradiction because I don't belong to myself, but I understand what it means when you have to yield yourself, give yourself away. Don't hold yourself back. Withhold nothing. Everything that he put in you, give it back to him. And that's what Catherine did. She was burdened for souls. And that's God's heartbeat. Look, you're going to succeed after you have the desires of your heart, being the desires of God's heart when you're seeking his kingdom, his righteousness, his peace, and his joy, you're going to do well. And that's what she was. She was burdened for souls, and that's what God's all about, drawing back his people to himself. He will enable you to do the things that he has called you to do if you're in his purpose. And the ministry of healings, the manifestation of God's power to heal bodies and save souls. For me, this takes me back. You know the story of the paralytic and his friends when they dug up the roof and they laid... You know, I'm lowered him down for Jesus. And when Jesus looked at that guy, I often tell people that story is amazing. Jesus looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven. I'm sure everyone's like, what? We brought him here so you can get him off this mat. Heal his body. Jesus understood that more than anything else, he needed his soul to be healed. He needed salvation. And that's key. That's the most important thing. And I often say that, There were only two people there who knew what Jesus had done that day. It was Jesus and it was that chap. He knew. He knew what Jesus had done by saying to him, your sins are forgiven. And that was his greatest need at the time. 
he would have been fine to live then. But Jesus said, just so that you would know. He then said to him, get up and walk. So it's our soul. That's where it's about. So first, he heals bodies, but he saves our souls. That's the eternal thing. That's what lives forever. And her desire to see God alone glorified. She wanted to give all the glory to God. Yeah. So she was really humble. And that's like Christ. He says he's God. When he was here, he was fully God. But he didn't grasp at equality with God. He let it go. He humbled himself. I have a version which I saw in a new... I've never read that version before. It's called the Passion Translation. He says, instead, he emptied himself of his outward glory by reducing himself to the form of a lowly servant. He became human. He humbled himself and became vulnerable, choosing to be revealed as a man and was obedient. He was a perfect example, even in his death, a criminal's death by crucifixion. Sometimes if we juxtapose what happened with Jesus to today, the shame, the humiliation, the disgrace, he took it all. And this was God. I often tell my kids, when I'm trying to explain, I'm like, you build a little Lego town and you put yourself in there and die for that town. It doesn't even capture it, but, you know, that's what Christ did for us. So I said today, in the last slide, I'm just thinking, so how do we... Do we have the last slide? All right, the last slide, but one. Sorry, can we go back? Back? Yes, here. So Catherine's story is still being told today. And I just thought, how do I engage this story for myself? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? And it's about the Holy Spirit. That's what I want to focus on today. Who is this Holy Spirit? Who is this? He's a person. He's real. And the way he impacted people's lives through Catherine, he can do the same through you. So we spoke again, I go back, talking about Mordecai Hall, Billy Graham, and that whole life. I just, for the life of me, can't remember the first guy's name, why it's not sticking. Edward Kimball. Yeah. But he can use you right where you are. Touch a life, touch another life, touch another life. And that can touch massively hundreds of millions of lives. These are not just words we're tossing. The research says it. She touched 100, 100 million lives. Billy Graham touched more lives than Apostle Paul. So those are real, real, real facts. Real people who lived today. So he can touch your life. He touch your neighbor's life. Or touch your, the little boy who lives next door to you. He could be a world changer. So wherever you are, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, yielded and completely still before him, allowing him to work in and through you, you can make a massive, massive difference in your world. We should be hungry and thirsty. And the Bible says that, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. You'll be filled. If you're hungry, you'll be filled. If you're thirsty, if you're meh, you, uh, you won't be filled. I think about the parable of the chap who was, he says he, he found a field, he found a treasure in a field. Have you thought about it? That's another sneaky fellow. He went quietly, didn't say anything, sold everything he had and bought that field. There was absolute commitment, dedication, no looking back, no halfway, you know, no straddling, no saying, let me play it safe. You can't play safe. I know we like to be safe, but you can't play it safe. You've got to be committed completely, totally. The Bible talks about a double-minded man being unstable in all his ways. If God is God, give him all you've got. Hold back nothing. Yeah? 
success, be intentional, be deliberate, and be committed. Don't be afraid to be different. She was different. She was very different, Catherine. She wasn't afraid to be different. She was criticized. She wasn't afraid to be criticized. You've got to step out of your comfort zone. I speak to myself. Don't be afraid to be different. Don't be afraid to get people pointing their fingers at you. They're looking, then they'll be listening. Lean into the Holy Spirit. I've got a lovely verse, which I really love there, in Leviticus 26, 9. And I picture, it says that God is leaning in my direction. I just think about his breath over me as he's leaning over me. It's empowering me. Lean into him back. Lean back. Don't, don't do this when he's coming. You know, lean back into him. And empty ourselves. John 3.30. John the Baptist says, I must decrease. Do you know the more we decrease, the more we make room for God's power to fill us. That's why the Bible also says, it says, when we're weak, that's when we're strong. Because there's room. Can you imagine the less of me there is? Then there's more of God in me. The less of me there is, there's more of God. So to kind of tie it all up together today, I just think ordinary people, ordinary people. Catherine Coleman was an ordinary person. She had an extraordinary God, and she engaged him in an extraordinary way. So ordinary me, ordinary you, if we engage our extraordinary God in an extraordinary way, we'll get extraordinary results as well. We'll be God's generals as well. Amen.